Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. We hope you enjoy our journey through the book of Acts, exploring the many powerful actions of Jesus Christ as he continues to move and teach us through his apostles by his Holy Spirit, empowering the explosion of the church to expand from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, which is you and me right here and right now, where we move from spectators to participants and join with Paul in preaching the gospel with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's now join Pastor Jordan Moody in our new series, Acts, The Movement Begins. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. With that, we can turn to Acts chapter 10. Uh, We'll be finishing Acts chapter 10 as we are coming on the heels of what we talked about last week, Peter and Cornelius. This is our series in Acts. If you're joining us today for the first time, thanks for being here. We're in in chapter 10 of Acts, verse 34 is where we're going to start reading. Peter's just had this extraordinary vision, and you'll hear him in chapter 11 as I read. He'll recount that vision that he had, and we're going to see the gospel go to the Gentiles today, all right? Acts chapter 10, verse 34, Word says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. That was much of our theme last week. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God appointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. This is Peter preaching this sermon to this group of Gentiles. It says in verse 41, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Verse 42, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone, I love this verse, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was saying these things, get that, while he was preaching, while he was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, these Jewish followers of the way, among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even, I love this, even on the Gentiles. (laughs) For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold uh, water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and they asked him to remain for some days in their house. Keep reading. uh, Chapter 11 follows up on this idea. It says, now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So down in Jerusalem and Judea and those other places, he's going to go to Jerusalem. He was up in Caesarea. He's now traveling south down to um, Jerusalem. It says, verse 2, then Peter went up to Jerusalem. Went up. It says up because it's of a higher elevation. So anytime you see it go up to Jerusalem, everybody has to go up to Jerusalem. Uh, So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, 
you went to uncircumcised men, non-Jews, Gentile people, and you ate with them. It's very accusatory. Verse 4, and Peter began and explained it to them in order. And he just really retells what we just read in chapter 10 and last week what we looked at. He says this, Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles, birds of the air, all sorts of animals in there. Verse 7, and I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And I said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten and nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived in my house in which they were. They sent me, they were sent to me from Caesarea and the spirit told me to go with them making no distinction. It's a key phrase, making no distinction that they were Jews, uh, that they were Gentiles and I was Jews, a Jew, rather. These six brothers also accompanied me and we entered the man's house, speaking of Cornelius. And he told us how he had seen the angels stand in his house and say, send to Joppa, bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Wow, verse 15. And as I was beginning to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them and here's a key phrase as well. Just as on us at the beginning. Holy Spirit fell on them just like it did on us. Verse 16. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave, them, uh, gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Then they heard these things and they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles, also God granted repentance that leads to life. Let us pray. Father, we come before you today. We ask that you would bless the reading of your word, the teaching and the preaching of your word. And Lord, that you would implant that word within our hearts to bear fruit. Father, we recognize we can do nothing without you today. I pray that you would be with this people in this gathering of saints today. For the children that are being taught your word, Lord, would you bless them. For Josh, as he preaches in Minadnock there in Peterborough, would you bless them? And all of our community and area churches, would you raise and build this church in this area to spread your good light into the darkness, Father? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week, we ended up drawing some comparisons towards the end of the message between Peter as he was sent up to Caesarea from Joppa, as he was sent to these Gentiles to preach this message that was going to bring salvation to a people that he potentially was not on board with. And we, we likened that story of Peter, we compared it to Jonah, if you remember. That's how we, we ended last week speaking about the connections between Peter and Jonah that are just quite striking and similar in the fact that both Peter and Jonah were called from Joppa in that same region. Jonah was called to go go to a faraway place, the Ninevites, the very direct enemies of, that, of his people. Pagan people, these Assyrians, these murderers, he thought, as they were as well. But he, he, he went anyways, right? No, he was, he, he was uh, eaten up by a, swallowed by a fish. He was in there for three days, three nights. And it's in that place that he prays this prayer. I'm going to just read to you uh, Jonah chapter 2. 
because I think it's, it's fascinating to consider these connections, but also to consider really the implications that it means for us of Peter going to these people, Jonah going to these people, and preaching a message of mercy and grace and forgiveness. We asked the question last week, are we comfortable with God's grace going to the them, right? Those people, those people that we disdain and, and dis- perhaps look down upon, we have prejudice against. Are we okay with God's grace going to them and giving them salvation? Preaching this message as Jonah does in Nineveh, this sermon that's only seven words long. <laughs> Peter preaching a message that in my points was a very simple message. In fact, you could say it was pretty basic. He doesn't really do much of anything in his sermon except for just tell them about what already happened. He doesn't really explain anything. He just says, this is what happened. Jesus did this. Jesus did that. Jesus came. He, he died and he rose again and he offers you forgiveness. And then boom, the Holy Spirit fell. You know? Peter pre- uh, Jonah's preaching this message. But it's, it's Jonah's prayer in the belly of the whale that struck me this week as I was looking at it. And I think you'll, I'll explain what I, what I mean here in a moment. Let me just read Jonah 2, verse 1. And Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. You can imagine Jonah just drowning in the water. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life and deep surrounded me. Weeds wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit. I love that phrase. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. David also says those words. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you that I have vowed, that I, the vow that I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. It's that final line there. Salvation belongs to the Lord. There are times in my short <laughs> pastoral ministry when I, I agree with much of what Lars said trying to figure out ways to, not to invent, as he was saying in that story, but to, to make the gospel more attractive, to make this a winsome message, to do my best that I can to offer something that makes a difference. And I don't think any of that is wrong as I try to do what is right and be excellent in all that we do here at church, here at Hope. But I am often struck, especially when I come up on a Sunday and I come up to preach, um, perhaps I'm in, a, in my office on the phone or, or in the counseling room with someone, and I am I'm often struck by my inability to change people. I, I saw a video this week, a friend of mine, Mike Donahue, he, he's been here several different times, but he, he posted this video that, that hit me, and it just stuck with my, in my head, because I think it communicated a lot of what I feel very often, and I, and I imagine what you feel as well. He, he said this, that in a sense, this, this video that he was saying, 
really what he's saying was that he was asking that there's, are we called to invite people to God, correct people in the truth, and or change people? And so this is just his basic question. He just, he said, Christians, and in particular, I think for me as a pastor and a preacher, that I, I, I am called by God to, to invite you to the Lord. In every sermon, in every message, I think every time we gather here at church, you've come here, you've spent time on your Sunday morning to come out to this place. And I think what we are doing in many ways is not always trying to twist your arm, but we are trying to present to you and lay in front of you the word of God and the plain preached, taught, sung, prayed scripture, the word. And by that, you would then be able to understand the word, the logos, Jesus Christ, right? And so we, we invite you so often to take that next step, to, to, to come closer to the Lord in your walk with him. And there are times when, and I think even Lars did in his prayer, that there is rebuke that comes. But there are times when you'll come into church and you'll feel a little uncomfortable because truth has that effect on you. The Holy Spirit pushes you in one way or another. And so there is not this offense that we seek to be offensive, but that, as Lars was reading, the cross is offensive. There is a certain level and a certain message of it. So there is an invitation to come to the Lord. There is a correction that often comes about when we submit ourselves under the, the word of God and the truth, and we submit ourselves to following the way of Jesus. There will be correction that comes, and, and thank God for that, right? And yet, at the end of the day, I, I desire to see life change. I desire to see transformation occur in your life. But I cannot change you, right? I cannot make this event here have real spiritual power. I cannot manufacture that. We cannot manufacture real spiritual life. I cannot bring dead to life. The Holy Spirit is the one who does that. And I think the message today I'm, I'm wanting us to consider and think about the importance of the Holy Spirit in everything we do. And in particular, when it comes to the preaching of God's word and what it is that we witness here in Acts 10 and 11 take place, the real action, you could say, the real, where the rubber meets the road, where real life comes in, where the Holy Spirit comes and changes someone's life. When regeneration takes place, you could say that described in, uh, you are born again. You ever heard of that phrase? John 3. When you're born again, you have been, you've, you, the Holy Spirit has come and dwelt within you. There is this life change. There's a new creation. You are a new life. Old man has passed away, the new has come. And there's this renewal of the spirit of our minds that takes place. There's this regeneration. There's a sanctification process that happens over the course of our lives. And one day when the Lord returns or calls us home, there will be a glorification that takes place, that completion of all that is being sanctified. And there is that process, there is that moment. Perhaps for you, you can look back on a moment and a time and a day. Maybe it was a more gradual experience but there must be, in the life of a Christian, a time when the living water of the Holy Spirit is poured out into your heart. You are born again into new life. And that soil of your heart, which was hard and cracked or dirt, uh, 
uh, desert-like or perhaps even like ice and snow. It was hard. That soil has been warmed. A new life, that soil is now able for that word to be implanted. And that word of God has been sown like a seed. And that saturated soil begins to bud. It brings forth growth and bears the fruit of the Spirit. And our lives now bear that fruit and that change, that transformation that occurs over time. God sanctifies us through his varied means of grace, chiefly through the means of the Holy Spirit, and that chiefly occurs in the church, around the people of God together, as we follow the discipline of following Jesus, becoming like him each and every day, until one day he calls us home. We meet him. That completion takes place, but we must remember that ultimately, salvation belongs to the Lord. There is a factor of obedience here that I've been called by God to preach and teach and pastor. You've been called in a different way, in a different manner. We've all been called as Christians to proclaim the truth to the people that we come in contact with. We've all been called to do that. But the actual change, the actual transformation, that actual difference really is one of those areas that, unless we are depending on the Holy Spirit for that, I wonder if at times, myself included, if we may rely on our methods and our means and our clever things that we come up with in order to manufacture that change. And that's when we don't see that lasting value that takes place. But, but what actually happens, what, what I have seen, what I have witnessed, what I do witness on a regular basis here among this church and among you is real transformation, life change that is occurring. And it is a joy to see. I don't want to make it sound like I don't. I think I'm just, I, I know in my own heart, do I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to really come in and radically transform a person? You know, is that something that I believe as I preach and teach? Is that something you believe as you receive the implanted word of God today? Because yes, there are times when I try to do my best to be able to communicate and teach, and that is wonderful. But yet, the worst sermon I've ever preached here, you know? I think God can take that and use something marvelously beautiful from it, right? So we do all that we can to be excellent in what we do, to proclaim the truth, to obey him in what we've been called to do and let him take that and do with it with what he would will. Let your will be done. And so that's what I think about and pray often when I'm considering the effectual effect and work that this has. I mean, you're here this morning, right? And I do wanna commend you for that. You don't know maybe perhaps how radical of a thing it is in today's culture for you to get up on a Sunday morning and go into a church. (laughs) That's probably the most rebellious thing you could do in today's culture. (laughs) And so you come into a place and I pray that we do our best to proclaim to you the truth, the plain word of God. And I do that knowing that spiritually God is gonna do something with it, something that I can't do but I know that he can, right? And I pray that for you today. And I, this is somewhat of a, almost the application of the sermon at the very beginning here in the introduction. But I think it's important to begin with that. 
that we pray for life change, a revival, we pray for a move from God, and, and God often, maybe not often, maybe always, he chooses to do that through the obedient action of mankind. It is that Peter was called by God, but he obeyed, and he went, and he preached. It's that Jonah disobeyed, but was called. Eventually, he went, and he preached, and life changed, and a radical revival took place in that city. It is that the, is the way God works. We see it through the book of Acts as he builds his church. The spirit will move and transform and empower and equip. And yet he's doing that in and through his people. And he's inviting and welcoming and growing and expanding this key kingdom as the movement begins from the cross and spreads globally from that place, even to reach you and I today that that spiritual transformation and power occurs even in us today. And I believe that for you. I believe that for those of you who are thinking right now, you're sitting in your frustration because there isn't been that change in your life that you're wanting to see. Sometimes that change comes in a radical explosion. Sometimes it comes over a process of two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back, but there is that forward movement that will always occur. And that's what we do today. We come in and simply do our best to sing, to pray, to present God's word. We're just gonna read it together as we did, and, and I'm gonna do my best to explain what God's given, and then we are going to trust the Holy Spirit to make a difference in our lives with what we have been given. And so we look here at this message that Peter preaches it's this message of good news and peace. It's a message of, of absolute blessing. It's a message of the gospel. He preaches the gospel. You'll see that in verse 36. He preaches. There's a, a word I've used in the past, kerygma. It's this kind of this uh, embodied message that was passed from Jesus to the apostles, the apostles to the church and to us today. And this kerygma is this, it means the preaching, the message. And we see a, a kerygma here of what it is that Jesus really taught the disciples and then the apostles as they take the message of Jesus Christ to the early church. And you get a little sense of what a sermon might have been like, but you also get a sense of what was the basic doctrine that they were teaching and preaching. Like if you asked Peter to tell you what's the gospel, or you could say, what, what if I asked you, what is the gospel? And so Peter is saying, go, preach to these people. What is it he to preach? He preaches the kerygma, this, this embodied, this, this wrapped up message of good news. And it always revolves around one person, as we're familiar with here in church. It, it revolves around Jesus Christ. But what is it that he shares? What are some of the same phrases that were passed not only here? Paul picks up these same things. James and others, they write. And Luke here as he's writing what it is that was shared. And this little message was this almost nutshell gospel, you could say. And it was passed around all over the place. And it even still reaches us today. And I want us to connect that very often. But it's a beautiful thing that we see as we, if you were to look at even one commentator said, if you were to look at the gospel of Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, if you were to look at the gospel of Mark and you follow the timeline of Mark 
chapter 1 to the end, I think it's chapter 16, if you were to look through the Gospel of Mark, you would find almost the same kind of outline of the Gospel of Mark as is found here in Peter's little mini-sermon. He preaches this message. And it's really, like I said, just a timeline of Jesus' life, which is why I was struck by it, because there are often when I'm like, man, that sermon didn't land, or that didn't do what I I thought it was going to do. And Peter, like I said, doesn't preach a message where you're just wowed or blown off your feet. He shares Jesus with them, talks about the kingdom, and he offers forgiveness of their sins through Jesus Christ. And yet the Holy Spirit has already primed the pump. The Holy Spirit is already there, and it's through the obedient action of Peter to preach this sermon that the Holy Spirit comes and radically transforms these people, right? And And I think that's how it is in our own lives. And so we get, right in the beginning, verses 34 and 35, we get this, the premise, which is he's starting off on, which we looked at last week. Again, if you missed last week, you're welcome to f- find it online on YouTube or podcasts. Check it out there. Follow those up. It'll help you to be and jump right back into it this week and in the coming weeks. If you miss a week, pick it up during the week so that you'll be on the same page with us. But last week, we looked at Peter and Cornelius as, as Peter goes to that 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 uh, man's house. He goes to Cornelius. He's a centurion. He's a Roman. Jews and Gentiles didn't eat together. They don't meet together. This is not something that you would say is kosher, right? And yet God has told him through this vision that not only are these dietary restrictions we find in the Old Testament, but now these restrictions between these groups of people are now going to be removed. Now all of a sudden these barriers, which were there for centuries, are no longer there. Now the door's wide open for fellowship, for hope fellowship, a whole bunch of nations and Gentile people, right, gathering together to worship one God because we've been united by one spirit through one faith, one baptism. That's the beauty of it. And so the, the whole point, the premise in which he's starting this entire message that Peter, the apostle here, would, this kind of mouthpiece of the apostle, as he's preaching, the whole premise is God shows no partiality. There's no distinction, as he said earlier in chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 28, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or visit anyone from another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean, and that's when in verse 34 and 35, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him, right, anyone who follows the righteous way, everyone who does what is right, that is what is acceptable to him, the righteousness of God, right? And so it's this beautiful depiction of, of this unified people, as Peter would l- then later write. Peter, I think it's in chapter two of 1 Peter, when he talks about that we are a holy nation. Maybe it's chapter three, I can't remember. But he, a holy nation, you're a chosen people. You've been called out from living stones. You are now been made into a, a nation of itself, the church, Christian saints of God. And this church looks very strange, looks very different. It's not one type of group of people that all look like each other and speak the same language. It is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational, it is multi, it is global, past, present, future. Hebrews 11 tells us that there's a whole cloud of witnesses cheering us on, that there are many who have gone before us who are now seeing the, the work of the church now and are waiting for us to meet them one day. And so this is... The premise that God shows no partiality, but he mercifully pours out his grace upon all. And we looked at it last week specifically because, well, nobody can claim salvation as coming from themselves. We're all unified together. 
because we all need God's grace. We all need God's grace, and that's this gift that's been given to us. It breaks down racial and religious barriers, and it opens up the door for God's grace to come to anyone who would repent, they would receive eternal life. This is the beauty of it. It's not an affirmation of your sin, that it's inclusive to anywhere you find yourself and you don't have to change, you just be you and you'll get to heaven one day. This is the whole idea of not an affirmation of who we are in our identity, but that when we come to Christ, we repent from our sins and our identity is changed to be found in him. And it's when it's found in him, we recognize that our old man has been passed away and the new man has come. And we are all in that same way, in that, all that same place. It is radically inclusive in the sense that it is saying anyone and everyone is welcome to come and receive forgiveness. It's beautiful. And so that's the premise he begins on. Verse 36, he speaks about really this peace that I had already talked to you about, this peace of good news. I love it. He preaches what? What does he preach? He encapsulates it and he, he preaches the evangelion, this, this evangelism, this, this um, gospel, this good news of peace through Jesus Christ. That this Jesus is the central figure in which all of this good news becomes, well, good, right? Jesus is the only reason who we have to gather and to preach a message of news that is actually good. Jesus Christ, this word, the logos that has become flesh in John 1, has been, has been given to us, this, this divine embodiment, this communicated, revealed word of God for us to see so that God would become and take on human flesh and be like us. Not remain aloof and afar off, but come with us. He would become Emmanuel, God with us. And so he would walk with us. He would take on flesh like we have. He would, he would encounter the temptation and trials of this earth, and he would conquer it all. It is this Jesus that we preach. It is that one who makes the bridge between the two sides. And it is that one who breaks down the dividing wall and makes peace in its place. Jesus, as he says also in uh, Ephesians, it says that he preaches peace. God is that one who preaches the peace of God. Jesus Christ preaches the peace here. And so he is Lord over all. He is Lord over everything. We see this mentioned as well in a variety of places. Romans chapter 5, he mentions this idea. Romans 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It has been through him that we have actually obtained access to eternal life. It is that through Jesus and the peace that he makes, we have obtained access to salvation. And it is only because of him. It's a beautiful, beautiful statement. I, I say, I'm saying that beautiful word a lot because when you read this, when you see it, it just, it just stands in such stark contrast to everything that the world has to offer you. It stands when the light is just beautifully arrayed in front of you. It's as if the darkness and evil of this world just, just flees away. And so he preaches this beautiful message of peace, the peace through Jesus. And then in verse 37, you'll see, you yourselves know what happened throughout all of Judea. So as he says, this is the message of Jesus. And then he's like, you guys know what happened. You've been following this storyline. You've heard everybody talk about this person, Jesus, who came, who lived among you, who was in this town, and then we took him on a cross, killed him, and, and then he rose again. I mean, this is what he does. He just says, you know what happened. And he says, listen, 
you know what happened, but, but let me tell you how it happened because I was actually there. I was there. I've been made a witness of this. And so he, he goes back to really the beginning of most of the Gospels, and he, he talks about John the Baptist. He says, John the Baptist proclaimed this to you, and how John has, was saying, come, repent, and turn, and John the Baptist was preparing the way for the Lamb of God who would come to take away the sins of the world. So come and, and, and find yourself, cleanse yourself, prepare yourself for the King who is coming. That's John the Baptist, his message, and so he talks about that. Then in verse 38, he talks about power. So not only is he talking about peace and this, this kind of prelude to everything that begins uh, the message of Jesus' kingdom that's coming. John the Baptist plays that prelude, and then in comes the main event. And in verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. An extraordinary phrase. God anointing Jesus with the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism. John the Baptist is there baptizing Jesus. The Holy Spirit falls, and it says it, it came like a dove, right? This falling motion. And then the, God, the Father, speaks from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Trinity is displayed there before us. And it's this phrase that we see as a clear carryover, as the power of the Holy Spirit not only falls on Jesus and initiates his public ministry, but the Holy Spirit also falls in the same like manner of, on Acts chapter 2 in uh, the Pentecost, the Spirit falls, and Samaritans it falls. And then later, for, for today, as we're looking at in Acts 10, it sees, we see that, right? It's a clear carryover from Jerusalem at Pentecost. And then Jesus' inaugural speech is, what does Jesus say? In his inaugural speech in Isaiah 61, uh, Jesus says this, that the spirit of the Lord, quoting from uh, Isaiah, he says, the, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me to bring good news, good news right there to the poor. This is what Jesus reads as he opens up the scroll. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, opening up the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort to all who mourn. And how is it that Jesus demonstrates this? Jesus walks and moves and he does good. In the Hebrew word that he does tov, right? He does good by healing all of those who are oppressed. He goes and he demonstrates the power of the Holy Spirit and the demonstration of what the real kingdom of God looks like, the real one-day kingdom that will come in its fullness, but this idea of the power of that kingdom when someone is living completely enraptured in Jesus' power. There is, it says here, that he is proclaiming this power, this spirit that moves in and through him. What does he do? He does good. Verse 38 healing all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. This testimony that he gives of the power of heaven descending to earth and radically transforming people is a foretaste and a foreshadowing of the eventual perfection that we will have in the new heaven and the new earth. It is a foretaste of what the power of God does, not only now, but also in its fullness when he returns. And so that statement is that the power is with Jesus, the power goes to the church as well. And so then what happens? Well, he does all of this, this testimony of the power of the kingdom of God that is coming to earth, and then, verse 39, the cross. And we're witnesses of all that he did, he says, both in the country of Jews and Jerusalem, and then they put him to death, hanging him on a tree. But then God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. 
You see that, what we see in these clear instances, we also see it in 1 Corinthians, where it says that there is a cross, there's resurrection, and then there are the appearances, and then eventually the ascension. You'll see that 39, 40, and 41. The cross of Jesus Christ, what we just saw, talked about, Good Friday. And we'll see uh, Easter morning in the resurrection. God raised him up. It's this, this statement of the gospel in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21 where, where it says that for our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That the cross of Jesus Christ, upon him all the sin was laid. It is that for our sake, for you and me, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might now become the righteousness of God. An incredible statement of the gospel, of the good news, right there in that verse. Peter also says in 1 Peter 2, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins on his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. 1 Peter and Isaiah 53, it says. This is the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus takes upon our curse and our sin. He pays our debts, our transgressions. He takes them upon himself and he puts that to the cross as Colossians says and he nails it to the tree. And then in the power of God, he is placed into the tomb and on the third day, he rises again. God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, this resurrection power. Again, foreshadowing the great power of the kingdom of God to bring life from death to bring light from darkness, to speak into the resurrection of not only this broken down earth, which is fallen as it is from the fall, but he will restore and regenerate and resurrect new life from it, just as he's doing now, and as I said, as he will do when he returns in the fullness of the consummation and the end of all things, which be, turns out to the beginning of everything in the kingdom of God. And so we see that happening, the appearances which happen because he knows that we are fickle people and we need proof and we need uh, to really see like Thomas, I'm not sure if I believe this, let me put my hands upon Jesus, right? And so the appearances, verse 41, 42, he appeared to a whole host of people, but not only just to them, but even to us, Peter says, I sat down and ate and drank with the resurrected Lord, incredible. This is living proof, you could say. And then verses 42 and 43, he, he says, now we are witnesses of this, implica implying too that you are to become witnesses of this. You are to become witnesses of this message to proclaim this gospel good news, this life-transforming power, for this is what the old prophets of the Old Testament proclaimed and what we proclaim now and what the preachers proclaim from years to come, you could say. Everyone, he says in verse 42, to him all the prophets bear witness of this. All the prophets bear witness of this Jesus who comes. Really the entire story of the Bible is about Jesus is what he says. That everyone who believes in him and receives forgiveness of sins uh, will receive forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone. This is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That everyone who believes in Jesus, calls upon his name, will be saved. And they will receive forgiveness. And so what we see in this is this message, this gospel, and then literally in verse 44, while he is preaching, while he is giving this message, there's no altar call given, <laughs> there's no invitation, not that necessarily any of those can go wrong, I'm just saying in this moment, Peter is preaching this message, and I'm not even sure if he knew what was going to happen, 
He's just talking that, hey, forgive. And then boom, verse 44, Peter, while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard the word. I love that. What was the method and the delivery of the changing power of the Holy Spirit? How does faith come? It comes through hearing, right? And hearing through the power and the preaching of the word of God, right? So how is it that God delivers this transforming power so often? It is through the hearing of the word of God. We don't just try to get you to come to church just to come to church to fill a seat, right? There is something in the powerful embodied and physical, yes, also spiritual word of God, that when it is read and when it is preached and taught, that has the power to transform, not just because of words, but through spiritually empowered word, the word of God through Jesus Christ, that we find entrance into the kingdom and we can find that we are in Christ when the Holy Spirit comes and changes this and us and our lives and empowers us with new life and energizes us for the future and for, to equip us with power. And so this is the, the idea of it that just gives me such a, a simple confidence, I guess you could say. I guess in some ways it strengthens my faith. It strengthens my faith. Because I'm not inviting you to come to my nice, cute little TED talk, okay? <laughs> and as I do, uh, please laugh at my terrible jokes at times, right? It keeps me going, right? But there are those aspects to it, but I'm not inviting you to that. There is something more that I don't have to manufacture and do on my own. I just have to lay it before you. <laughs> I just have to let the Spirit do its work. We have to be obedient and do what he's called us to do, and the simple gospel will take its effect. The implanted word of God will not return void. And so we see the display of this happen in this radical transformation, verifying for those other Jewish brethren that were there that the, the Holy Spirit would even come to people like this. And the, the, Gentile, the Jewish people are amazed. They're like, I can't even believe this, that the Holy Spirit fell on us in Acts 2, then it fell on the Samaritans, and now it's falling here. This is incredible. And so they see this, this absolutely radical change. There is, you could say, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that happens in this manner. This regeneration that occurs does not always occur for everyone in like manner in this explosion kind of way. But for sure, every believer, every Christian, this is a universal experience that we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, that saving moment where we come to a realization of who we are without Christ and now who we are in Christ. That the old man is shed off and the new man comes, that is the moment of spiritual cleansing and life. And like I said, we experience that in, in a variety of different ways, but Peter here displays it most powerfully, that then is then enacted out as the believers then follow out that baptism of the Holy Spirit that has occurred in them, the saving, born-again experience that they have had, what occurs to follow up that immediately? They, well, say, well, then can we withhold water from these people? <laughs> now we will physically go through the waters of baptism to demonstrate what has occurred, to demonstrate this entrance into the kingdom, entrance into the church, and that Jesus Christ has entered our lives through his spirit, and we are now alive in him. This is the demonstration of baptism in this place. And so kind of as we bring some of these to close, I want to illustrate some of this as we've tried to understand what's going on. 
chapter 11, again, Peter kind of reminds us of some of these same things that has occurred. In actually, about that baptism, he says in verse 15 and 16 of Acts 11, he says, as I begin to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as it was on us in the beginning. And he said, I remembered what Jesus had said, John baptized you with water and you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And if God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, then who was I to stand in his way? He gave the same gift to them as he did to us. Those Gentiles received it, we did as well. And this is what we see with the, the gospel being expanded from Pentecost out. 1 Corinthians 12 says, for just as the body is one, many members, all members of the body through many are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. All were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Yet one spirit unites us together, amen? That is what we find in the church. And so we see that demonstrated very plainly for us on the pages of scripture in the book of Acts. If you remember back in Acts chapter two, obviously we begin, this movement begins, but in Acts chapter two, we see at Pentecost, this extraordinary, many would say the birthday of the church, the Holy Spirit came from the cross. Jesus then ascends. He says, I don't leave you alone, but I leave you with the Holy Spirit. The comforter will be with you and he will come upon you and equip you with great power in a matter of days. That happens on the day of Pentecost, just 50 days after, after Passover, Penta, 50 here. So Pentecost occurs, this moment when the Holy Spirit falls upon the church, and in particular, in Jerusalem among Jewish followers, okay? So that's an extraordinary moment, but yet there could be, in the sense, many in the church who said, well, the gospel and the Holy Spirit came to those group of people in that way, in Jerusalem, but they didn't come to us. So God sends the Holy Spirit in another extraordinary way to expand the kingdom to the Samaritans. So if you look at Acts 8, you'll see that kingdom expand even greater. And the Samaritans, who were those half-Jews, half-breed, viewed almost like uh, uh, kind of traitors to the Jewish people, they were not welcomed into the fellowship. The Holy Spirit goes there, and then they send Philip and Peter. They all go up there and like, did God really send the Spirit to the Samaritans? Like, God, are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> And so the radical transformation in Acts chapter 8 occurs in that moment. And then in particular, we see this one in Acts chapter 10, just bust the dam wide open. And in Acts chapter 10, you see the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit in like manner. In fact, some of the phrasing is so similar that you cannot help but think about those two other occurrences. Because it says that the Spirit fell and that the Spirit was poured out. Both of those statements you will see uh, very clearly in Acts 2 and 8. And here in Acts 10, we see this explode even further. You'll also see another lesser known case, but in Acts 19, you'll see the disciples of John who were not aware of the Spirit and Jesus who had come, but were aware of the repentance of John the Baptist, that God sent the Spirit to them as well for those who were outside that understanding to completely verify for us once and for all that the Spirit of God and the life-transforming power of the gospel is for anyone who calls in the name of the Lord, that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It isn't just for a certain group of people in a certain time, or if you get your act together just enough to reach the high point on the ladder to where you are good enough to receive the grace of God. It is for anyone and everyone that if you come to him, you too can receive forgiveness of your sins. That's the the beauty of grace. <laughs> it's the beauty of the gospel. It's what Acts is trying to teach us. 
that we then are called to take this message out from Acts 10, as we're going to see Paul and Barnabas do the first missionary journey. They're going to go all throughout the Mediterranean region, preaching the gospel, planting churches all over the place. And that's where we get most of the New Testament, Ephesians, Galatians, Thessalonica. We get all of these different, Corinthians, Corinth, right? We get all of these places because from this point on, the message is gone wide open. For me, it's hard to understand this at times, but there was almost like, I was thinking this week, try to illustrate this. And for me, I was thinking through the the kind of, if you can think about in our own country, the kind of start of our, of our country. If you look back and you think about the United States of America before it was and now it is been around for a couple hundred years and we're trying to hold it together today, right? If you look back on like, compare that, that moment, the Declaration of Independence where we declare separation from uh, the UK, the British, right, we, from the king. We, we separate ourselves. We declare our independence. In my mind, to me, that, that shows me like this moment on, on, on uh, Good Friday and Easter when God declares our independence from the grave. He declares our independence from sin and hell and the devil, and he breaks those chains and he opens that up completely, right? And to me, that declaration of independence is that moment on the cross and his resurrection, which we celebrate. But for me, the Pentecost that comes some days later, you can almost say that that's like our constitution. It, it is almost like the thing that now holds us together. It's one thing to say, you're free, go, be free. It's another thing to say, well, we're free to what? What are we to do now? What, what keeps and holds us and unites us together, we would say it goes back to the Constitution. What does it say in the Constitution? We, the people, we, the people of the United States, in order to correct, uh, to form a more perfect union, a people unified around a certain set of values. And then you could say, if I'm gonna keep stretching this illustration to the point where it probably doesn't work, we're gonna, we're gonna go to that 13th Amendment. You could say that Samaritan Pentecost there, that Samaritan event is like the 13th Amendment. It abolishes that slavery and it adds to it. It doesn't create a new constitution. The constitution was written. It's there in Acts 2. The spirit is here. It unites us. But there are groups that are ostracized outside of that. And so just to affirm that those slaves are now free, we will make the 13th Amendment, the 14th. You could say the Gentile could be the 15th Amendment, where now all our rights, no matter, no matter what race or religion you can vote in this country, they were saying. And so let us welcome in these groups. The Constitution is formed. It unites us around the same goal, the same place. It unifies us as a nation, as a new people. Ephesians even talks about this idea of a new society, that we are participants in this new society of God through the power of the Holy Spirit that connects us together. And yet, how is it that you truly identify with that society? How is it that you identify as a citizen of that nation? How is it that you participate in that? Well, you believe, you have faith, yes. You are called and the Spirit transforms your life. But how is it that you let others know that you're part of that kingdom? It's through baptism. And that's what we see in baptism, both in the variety of forms and modes in which it's celebrated. We see a unifying factor that it identifies us with the kingdom of God. It identifies us with that the Holy Spirit is working to unite us to the people of God and the family of God. You could say baptism is like this test of citizenship. It is the thing that is marking us and it is that sign that, that tells that we are part of this kingdom of God. It is as if, you might even say, it's as if we've put on the uniform and we are identifying in that uniform that we are part of whatever branch of military it might be. 
And so we put on that uniform that identifies to other, that guy is in the Navy, that guy's in the Air Force, whatever it might be. But you know because physically they have put on the outward clothing. We have cast off our robes and rags of, uh, of, of unrighteousness and filthy rags, and we have put on robes of righteousness. And it's in that moment, it's in that manner that we put on those things that we are reminded in the last verse of Acts 11, verse 18, the passage we read today. It is Acts 11, 18, that those barriers are broken down because for all, for anyone that would come, it says, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And salvation is through repentance. We see that in baptism. This repentance that we are placed under the water, this death in Romans 6, that we are raised to walk in newness of life. This repentance from sin, raised to walk in newness of life. The new creation comes about in that manner, in that depiction spiritually in our lives. And so this is what unifies us. This is what's gonna hold us together. This is what is gonna hold us together as a church. Not us just getting along for the sake of getting along, right? Because that's difficult enough in your own families that you can't change, right? but rather the church here, Hope Fellowship Church. What is gonna keep us together through thick and thin moving forward in the future? It is gonna be the power of the Holy Spirit that unites us by the peace that Jesus Christ has made between us and God that allows us to dispense and give peace to one another and to live and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit in a spiritual community, a real spiritual community, people who are living and being led by the Holy Spirit and that are, being, are willing to follow him and whatever he calls us to do. So I pray for you in that and for our future as a church to walk in this same message of the gospel that Peter presented, that is presented to us, received by us, and is now lived out and empowered through the Holy Spirit each and every day. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come before you today and we ask God that you would remind us of these truths today. That you would not let us leave this place just forsaking some of these things and acting as if nothing of this is important. I also pray, God, if there are people in this place who, who aren't sure about what it is we've talked about, who aren't sure about salvation, repentance, and regeneration and new life, uh, that they would seek out someone who can share that with them today. They would seek out myself or anyone else, Lord, that would be able to point them from the scripture of what you have done for us today. Lord, thank you for your saving grace, your power, and the power of the Holy Spirit today. Thank you for this church service this physical thing in which we're here today, but yet the spiritual reality that exists among us and unites us together. We thank you for it. And God, we just, we're all about Jesus today. Thank you, Jesus, for being here for us and speaking your truth into our lives today.